Bible reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 53 through to chapter 6, verse 5. They said to him, Jesus' disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? For the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and his disciples began to pick some ears of corn rub them in their hands and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. I much prefer to see your smiles instead of your masks. But uh, next week, that'll be great. Friends, uh, when the author and apologist Josh McDowell was at university, he writes, Everyone thought that I was the happiest man on campus. But the life I was living, he said, was hell. He said, I was uh, like a boat out in the ocean, tossed back and forth by the waves. I had no rudder, no direction, nor control. But I couldn't find anyone living any other way, and I was frustrated. Young guy, non-Christian at this stage. He said, about that time, I noticed a small group of people, eight students and two faculty members. They seemed different from all the others. They seemed to know who they were and where they were going, and they had convictions. It was refreshing to find people with convictions, and I like to be around them. I admire people who believe something and take a stand for it, even if I don't agree with their beliefs. It was clear to me that these people had something that I didn't have. They were disgustingly happy, he says. And their happiness didn't ride up and down with the circumstances of university life. No, it was constant. They appeared to possess an inner sense or inner source of joy. I wondered where it came from. So he was moved by their attitudes, their love, and their joy to check out Jesus. And in time, he came to faith in Christ and became the great Christian apologist defending the Christian faith right across the globe. In the Gospels, wherever Jesus went, he brought love and joy to people, didn't he? It was exciting to be around him. The crowds couldn't get enough of him, but the religious couldn't stand him. 
And if you just look at Luke 5 that we've been considering the last couple of weeks, you know, some of his disciples and you miraculously catch a huge number of fish. And then having got so excited about the fish, you say, he says to you, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll catch people. They have a grander vision than simply catching fish. They'll be part of his plan to bring the nations into the kingdom. Then Jesus heals a man with leprosy, and when he does that, crowds of people come to Jesus. They love him. They follow him. Then he heals a paralytic, as we saw last week. He forgives the man's sins. He claims to be equal with God. He upsets the religious leaders. They think he's dangerous and blasphemous, but the crowds are filled with awe. It's exciting to be around Jesus. Then he calls Levi, a hated tax collector, to follow him, then he attends a great banquet at his house. Here's Levi, a hated man in Israel. And then he gathers all his other hated friends, the irreligious, the immoral, the sinful. And the religious leaders complain about Jesus. He's eating too much. He's supposedly drinking too much. He's having too much fun with these sinners. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responds, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Friends, Jesus is clearly mixing with the wrong crowd, and he is having too much fun in his life. He and his friends are too disgustingly happy. And there's not much fasting going on, is there? Which takes us to the, this passage of Scripture where we look at the area of fasting in the new era. You see, it seems as the Pharisees are watching Jesus, he's not solemn, he's not serious, he's not fasting nor are his disciples, but John the Baptist's disciples are. So what we see happening is John the Baptist's disciples, who are on Jesus' side, are watching Jesus and his disciples work, and they're a bit confused. The Pharisees are a bit confused. And in Matthew's Gospel, we read these words, then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Luke's Gospel says, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. I think it's fascinating, Jesus, as he does his ministry, he not only shocks the religious, he also shocks John the Baptist's disciples, who are on Jesus' side. We need to remember that John the Baptist was an ascetic. He lived a barren lifestyle, whose members called for mourning and repentance. John came as the ultimate, final prophet of the old covenant, repair the way for the new covenant of the Messiah. A change was going to take place. And what they were seeing at Levi's party did not mesh well what they'd been taught. Friends, in the first century, fasting in Judaism was a major sign of piety. It was an act of worship. The Pharisees had decreed that godly people fast twice a week on Mondays and on Thursdays. For them, fasting meant mourning. It was a sacrifice to God, offering of their flesh to God. It was a sacrifice meant to get God's attention. You know the overall effect? You can see the picture up there. Overall effect was to make religion seem solemn, joyless, and gloomy. And in fact, they tried to look as miserable as possible. They would widen their faces, refuse to wash, and walk clothes in shoddy fashion. Look at me, I'm fasting. Look at me. I'm close to God. Look at me. I'm serious. Look at me. I'm religious. Look how miserable I look. 
So we have parallels today, don't we? Like the preacher's voice that sounds solemn and serious, dolefully addressing God with tomb-like tones rather than a positive gospel proclamation. We must be serious with God, friends. Well, consider the story of a church service. Picture here is a young child in the pew. Turned around looking at people as children do. Smiling, so delighted to be here with us. When her mother noticed, she told her daughter in stage whisper, stop that grinning, you're in church. Gave her a swat. Then she said, that's better. I'm thankful that's not what we do in our church. That's not how we express our worship and our joy in worship. We can both be solemn and joyful because there's a place for both, isn't there? We can be righteous and still have a smile on our faces. Although today, hidden behind our masks. And Jesus responds, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Friends, uh, weddings went on for a long time in the first century. My father was telling me, and he wasn't in the first century, but he was telling me that he, his wedding went for three to four days. I said, what are you talking about? I said, we come the, from the two villages, we come and we party. I said, mate, who pays for all of that? I thought, but anyway, that's another story. But he said, our weddings went on for three to four days in the village. And Ken Hughes writes about the first century. He says, a newly married Jewish couple did not honeymoon. They stayed home for a week-long open house during, their, during which there was continual feasting and celebrating. Imagine that. I reckon my wedding, I was tired after a few hours. What about you? I was ready to get out of there. A week long. You see, Jesus uses this picture of a wedding, which often describes God's relationship with his people. He said, the groom is now present. The wedding is taking place. There's no need for mourning or seeking deliverance. The good news of the kingdom has arrived. And Jesus' very presence, he says, justified a feast and a celebration. But it says when the groom is taken away, then fasting will be appropriate. Jesus is now pointing forward to his suffering. When the groom is gone, he says, and that happens on the cross, doesn't it? When a groom is gone, when they see him hanging up on the cross, there's a time for mourning. There's a time for fasting. There's a time for praying. But you see, their sorrow will give way also to the joy of the resurrection the ascension and the session where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Further, their sorrow gave way at the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this is really significant, this passage in John 16. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. See, that weeping time, the mourning time is coming. Yet you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. It's a time of mourning, a time of pain, but then a time of joy. My friends, there's a sense in which knowing Christ is a perpetual celebration, a perpetual feast. We follow Christ who has been resurrected. And Martin Luther put it this way, a Christian should and must be a cheerful person. If he isn't, the devil is tempting him. 
Now, we understand there are times life is tough and we go through difficulty and we go through sorrow and so on. You can't always be happy. But there's a sense of joy that Christ gives us that helps us to navigate those periods of time. But I think there's still a room for mourning and for fasting, even though Christ had been raised from the dead. You know why? Because we are looking forward to a second coming. We're looking forward to the consummation of God's kingdom. And as we look around us today and we see uh, the church in many places in disarray, as we see COVID spreading across our, uh, our, our world, as we see deaths in India, and whether it's in China or Nepal now, uh, if we see that suffering, as we see domestic violence, as we see abuse, as we see people struggling to put food on their table for their families in many parts of the world, when we see those things, we fast, we pray, we mourn, we look forward to the coming again of Jesus when all things will be made right. Romans 8, 17 to 30 talks about that. We ache and we pray and we seek the, the completion of our redemption. And then Jesus, having said that, moves on to this uh, two images. Firstly, it tells them this parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the garments, and the patch from the new will not match the old. Judaism, making significant points here, as good as it was, had become like an old, worn-out garment. Jesus is bringing in a new garment, he says. You don't sew the old garment and the new garment together. If you do, the new garment will shrink on washing, while the old garment will not. It will tear them apart. Both fabrics will be useless. He says, you cannot mix Jesus' new teaching with the old. And you think, well, hold on. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, doesn't he? He does fulfill it. He comes to complete it. And some areas are no longer applicable. There's a newness to his teaching in the New Testament. Then he uses another more apt illustration. He said, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Okay, now he goes to another image. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. This is another tragic error. The problem with the, uh, putting new wine into old wineskins is that the new wine is still fermenting and it will ultimately explode and the old wineskin will burst. And Daryl Bach, commentator, writes, the point again is that the new era will bring new ways, which must therefore have new containers. Jesus is more than a reformer of Judaism. He has come to refashion it into something fresh. And friends, Christ, against the Pharisees, against the religious leaders of this day, wants to produce an expanding joy in the hearts of his people. The new wine of life cannot be restrained by old, unyielding structures. Jesus is saying, watch this space. If you're upset with me now, wait to see what else I will do. But finally here, he looks at how traditional Jews may have viewed the changes that Jesus was bringing. He uses what is a common proverb. The proverb goes like this, and you may feel like this too. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Remember the way how we used to do church? It was better. Remember the 50s? It was better. Remember how we used to not drink at all? It was better. Remember when we didn't dance, it was better. Remember when we... Anyone gone there? I used to like church better 
in the past. That's what the Pharisees are like. Jesus brings something new, a new perspective, new direction. They go, no, 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 Jesus. The old is better. Our way of worshipping is better. Our way of fasting is better. We don't like Jesus and what you're doing. My friends, Jesus is interested in joyful obedience, not just following rituals or undertaking spiritual tasks. Fasting, prayer, Bible reading, church attendance, home group attendance, and even ministry involvement can become just rituals. What we do every week. It's a ritual. Tick the spiritual box. I'm doing well spiritually. I've ticked the boxes. Let me say to you this morning that God wants more than that. God wants you. Completely surrendered. Then you find the life and get the joy. He wants you completely surrendered to him. And yes, you will do all those things as an expression of love for God and because you want to read the Bible, you want to gather with God's people, you want to encourage each other in, in your home group, Uh, to keep persevering for Jesus. You want to serve in ministry because God has gifted you and you want to use what God has given you for his glory. Yes, but it comes out of complete surrender to God, not simply ticking the boxes. The following Jesus is not simply about being solemn and serious. And I'm often solemn and serious, by the way. But it's not about being legalistic and critical and judgmental. And just like the Pharisees, so many people, as they looked at Jesus, look at other Christians and uh, find reasons to attack how they live. Chuck Swindoll tells this almost bizarre story of how Christians have treated one another in the past. He tells the story about some missionaries. We're talking about missionaries today. And uh, overseas missionaries who uh, had left the United States, but he said they had a hankering for some peanut butter. They couldn't get it where they were deployed, where they were serving. So they wrote to some friends, and their friends said, what, what, what would you really like? He said, oh, I really miss peanut butter. If you could send us some peanut butter, that would make our day. Australian missionaries, they asked for Vegemite. I have no idea why anyone would want Vegemite, but there you go. I've heard that happen before. But they asked for peanut butter. So their friends, to bless them, sent them a whole box of Several jars of peanut butter, not just one, but a box full. But there are other missionaries in the same location who thought it was unspiritual to crave peanut butter. There you go. They said that when a person becomes a missionary, they should have left the luxuries of the United States behind them. They should take up their cross and not desire peanut butter. Probably said that by wanting peanut butter... They were acting like Lot's wife, looking over their shoulder at Sodom and Gomorrah and all she had left behind. Eventually it got so bad, this couple who wanted peanut butter came back to the States. They gave up being missionaries. It's amazing what little things we do, how we judge and critique one another. Jesus teaches us to find joy in him and to encourage one another. But there's a temptation to be like the Pharisees to find fault in others and to criticize them. How sad that is. Friends, following Jesus is about joyful passion for the glory of God. Following Jesus is about being filled with love and grace. 
Following Jesus is about being partners in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus is in trouble again. Now it's the Sabbath. The guy can't help himself, can he? And people will say, Jesus, meek and mild. This guy is always in trouble in his life. And now he moves and does something illegal on the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain. They picked them up, they rubbed them in their hands and they eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, the actions of the disciples look innocent enough. The taking of grain is not a problem. And did you know that in Israel, a portion of the field was to be left for those in need? Deuteronomy 23, 25. So it was not illegal to take some of the grain when you were hungry and starving. But they do so on the Sabbath, the holy day of rest. The Mishnah, an ancient rule book, contained instructions about Sabbath practices. It had 39 prohibited practices. And the disciples committed multiple violations. In that simply picking up of the grain, rubbing it and eating it, they have broken multiple violations of the Mishnah. They have worked on the day of rest. How? Well, they were guilty of reaping, threshing, and winnowing. See, when they began, or they reaped, when they began to pick some heads of grain, they've reaped. They threshed and winnowed when they rubbed them in their hands. When they ate the kernels, they were guilty of preparing food on the Sabbath. The Pharisees have been watching the disciples. They've been watching Jesus, as we see, all the way along, right? They watched him last week when he healed the paralytic and said, your sins are forgiven. They're upset about that, upset about hanging around with Levi, upset that they're not fasting, now upset that they are breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus doesn't seem to care what type of leader is this man. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, they asked. It's driving the Pharisees nuts. He keeps doing the wrong things. And Jesus said, I love how he always answers, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Well, firstly, when he asked that question, he knows they've read the passage. The passage is in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. They've read their Old Testament. They've probably memorized. They know that David ate consecrated bread that only the priest should eat. And he wasn't a priest. He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what was lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave to some of his companions. Take that, says Jesus. You are about my guys breaking the Sabbath law. David broke another Old Testament law. And it's in your Bibles. And in fact, the priest offered it to him, gave it to him, and the priest didn't think there was a problem with it. And the priest wasn't disciplined. So the Old Testament seems that that's appropriate at times to break God's law to feed the hungry. So the Pharisees are in a dilemma. If they condemn Jesus, they have to con condemn David. And the fact that in the Old Testament, their God didn't punish him for eating it. See, the parallel passage in Matthew says this. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you have not condemned the innocent. You would not have condemned the innocent. They're talking about the Sabbath, and Jesus says, you don't understand mercy. You're about sacrifice and so on. You don't understand mercy to the hungry, to the needy. 
He's quoting Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God desires merciful, compassionate actions rather than ritual observance. He said, you would not have condemned my innocent disciples for plucking some grain on the Sabbath if you had mercy. Wake up, Pharisees, he says. A thousand years ago, the priest Ahimelech lived out this principle and gave out consecrated bread to feed the hungry. You need to show mercy instead of simply criticizing. Then he says, to drive the point home, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, this man, Son of Man Jesus, I am Lord over it. I make the rules. I can determine what happens on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a divine institution thundered down from heaven, from God, and Jesus has supremacy over it. Remember last week he said, I can forgive sins, making him equal with God. Now he's saying, the law that came from God, I have authority over it. Again, making him divine. When Jesus says that, he speaks about his identity and his authority. He is the interpreter of the law. He must be submitted to, surrendered to, as he reveals the way to God. must be careful we are not like the Pharisees in relation to the day of rest. And if we consider the church in the past, we've been extremely legalistic in this area. Not for a while now. Sometimes I wish we became a little bit more legalistic in the present age. We are so loose on what happens on the Lord's Day and the day of rest that uh, sometimes there's not much difference between the non-Christians and the Christians. But in the past, it was much tougher. Because in the past, the church had moved the Jewish Sabbath and made it the Sabbath on a Sunday. It took the Old Testament law and made similar rules for the New Testament, simply moved it from Saturday to Sunday, which I don't believe that's correct or accurate. Reading a story of a uh, Christian college in the United States had very strict Sabbath laws, not on Saturday as the Jews, but on the Sunday. They moved them over the day. Like the pharisaical laws, nobody on campus was supposed to do any sort of work at all on the Sabbath. Well, one guy on the campus, I'm told, spied his wife on a Sunday hanging out a few articles of clothes to dry. Guess what he did? He turned his wife into the authorities for working on the Sabbath. I'm not sure how long they stayed married after that. I have a friend of mine who was at a uh, Fundamentals Christian Bible College, and he was the speaker for the weekend. And on a Sunday, he was playing table tennis with his son. I thought that's what you do at camps, right? He was reprimanded for having entertainment on the day of rest, never invited back to speak at that place. But whether it's on the Sabbath or some other times, we've had other rules that we have implemented, haven't we? that we have condemned others for. If we think over the years, you need to look back a little bit because you think, oh, we're pretty good, we're pretty smart these days, we're not legalistic. But you think where we've come, and I wonder what people say about us in 20 years' time. So, so I look back, you know, you weren't allowed to, in some places, to go to football games, attend an opera, drink coffee, it's a drug, stop at people, drink alcohol, as a good Baptist. We, Baptists never used to drink alcohol. You know that you've failed Baptists. I know a lot of you in here failed Baptists from the old days. I, on the other hand, maintain teetotalism. 
It's a very good thing. Or go to the beach. I was told in my youth group when I was growing up, you cannot go to the beach. Definitely not dancing. So we used to run western nights, had a bit of bush dancing. But we weren't dancing, it was just a western night. Get a tattoo. I still think that's a great idea not to get one. Or wear makeup. Or play cards. It's linked to gambling. There's always good reasons why they had these in. Watch any kind of movie at the theater or even in your home. Letting Satan into your home that way. I even owned a television in the early days. Listen to certain types of music. Invest in the stock market. Observe Christmas with a decorated tree. Decorate and hide Easter eggs. Read mystery novels. And you know, all the hullabaloo when the Harry Potter books came out. Big Christian debates all over the place whether you should read them or not read them. And on and on it goes. We have to be wise in making some of those decisions. We can laugh at some of those. Some of those you're thinking, no, I really think that's a good thing. I'm with you in some of that. There's a difference between legalism and judgmentalism and having the joy of Christ and living for him. See, Jesus attracted the crowds to him because he had a message of hope and a message of love and a message of transformation. He spent time with the people that no one else loved. He showed mercy. And the crowds flocked to him. The religious leaders, on the other hand, even John the Baptist's disciples who are on Jesus' side are a little bit confused by this radical nature of Jesus' uh, preaching and teaching and ministry. As Josh McDowell said about the Christians he met, it was clear to me that these people had something I didn't have. They were disgustingly happy, he says. And their happiness didn't ride up and down with the circumstances of university life. It was constant. They appeared to possess an inner source of joy. I wondered where it came from. Friends, it comes from Jesus. Can I urge you to find your joy in him and focus on mercy and compassion rather than legalistic actions? New era, new ways Jesus brings in. May God help us to live that new, new life in this new era to the glory of God. Amen. Lord God, thank you for your, your, your word, Lord, that just challenges us to change and to think again about our lives and how to live and what really matters. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to stand up for truth and to show us the way to God. Thank you, Jesus, that you were able to celebrate with people and find joy in, in the life that you've given us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing, though, to go to the cross for us, that we would be restored to relationship with you, that we could find joy beyond the mourning and the suffering and the fasting. And Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who are filled with mercy, not simply sacrifice, who are filled with joy because of knowing you, that we will be men and women completely surrendered to you. Lord, we know that you want us, not simply our rituals. And may our habits and our rituals and our behavior flow out of a complete surrender to you, seeking your glory in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.